You're listening to That'll Preach. We are here, me and Paul, reunited, and it feels so good. It's been a minute, Paul. It's been a long time. I was, missed I was, hanging out with you. I know. Even, even if it's just virtually. Uh, once again, you're squatting in another person's home. I don't know how you do this, but I don't think you've paid rent in the past year. That's actually true. Yeah. It's they actually have no true. idea that I'm here. <laughs> I just like sneak in when they leave for work. <laughs> That's hilarious. They're just like, do you think you're like, you think their house is haunted because you, you're like tiptoeing around? There's like rumors in Waco of this weird philosophy professor who like may or may not sneak into your house when you're gone. Yeah, they're like, they're like, my house is haunted <laughs> by a philosophy professor. He just, all he does is he jumps out of closets and, you know, screams through the vents these existential questions about existence. <laughs> I am convinced that this house is haunted though. Why There's is that? definitely something living in my basement and I have no idea what it is. What do you mean? Like I, I leave out poison. I don't know if it's a rat or a possum or something, but the poison keeps, keeps getting eaten. There was like a glass thing that broke a couple nights ago. It's, it's another weird. philosophy professor that's living in your basement. <laughs> He's like, oh, you found my place. I gotta, move, I gotta move on. <laughs> I've been here for 15 years. <laughs> when did you get here? It's all it's society. Like, <laughs> it's like the Korean movie Parasite, but with two philosophers. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It's so creepy. Well, we have gathered together on this occasion because we have the celebration of the Reformation happening on the 31st. I didn't even think of that. Day. Yeah, that's why this we're is doing perfect. this. I know. Good. I know. And uh, we want to we want to take a few friendly jabs at Roman Catholics. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We want to be fair. We want to be charitable. Um, I know many great Roman Catholics, great friends, uh, wonderful people, thoughtful people. And uh, so, you know, we don't want this to be a Catholic bashing type of thing. In fact, we, you know, even though we'll talk about you can't really talk about Protestantism without talking about Catholicism. I think the big thing we want to do here is make a positive vision for Protestantism, not just viewing it merely reactionary, but as something that is a tradition in its own right. And we're going to do that over a series of episodes. So this is going to be the, the, the initial kind of icebreaker one. So if you're looking for SmackDown arguments, this, this isn't going to be the one. We're just going to kind of talk freely about a couple of things that we've noticed in our lives and and even you know, things that we've experienced ourselves. I think today there is a, a, an appeal of Roman Catholicism in our secular age or post-Christian age, an age of all these kind of moral ambiguities and moral decay and the extreme progressivism that has run rampant throughout Western culture. All these types of things are forcing to the surface some serious questions about authority, about tradition, uh, about how we uh, find kind of a, a mooring for our souls, a, a kind of foundation, a moral foundation that can withstand the shifting sands of culture. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to, to talk about this, and, and I think this is going to be a good little little series. It's going to be great. Well, I want to start off, uh, and this is an article that you sent me. This is actually a review of a book by D.G. Hart, one of your former colleagues at Hillsdale. You left Hillsdale. He, he's still at Hillsdale. Um but he, he's an OPC guy, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the only pure church. And uh, he, is, he wrote a book called Still Protesting, Why the Reformation Matters. And it was reviewed by a guy named Richard Gamble. And Richard Gamble, in his review of D.G. Hart's book. He's also a professor at Hillsdale, by the way. Also They're colleagues in the same department. Yeah. There you go. Well, he wrote this 
interesting paragraph about the appeal of Roman Catholicism for Protestants today. And I want to read this out loud. He says, um, in the case of college students, their conversion to Rome typically starts with friendship. As a courtesy, they accompany a roommate or classmate to mass, usually with the promise of a return visit to their own Lutheran, Presbyterian, Baptist, or Methodist church. Surprised in some cases by a kind of earnest Catholicism they didn't know existed, they become curious. They start reading. They get into disorienting debates over justification, sanctification, the sacraments, tradition, and beauty. They might find the Roman Church's pro-life activism and emphasis on marriage and the family compelling. They might sense the alienation of modernity, resent the damage done by divorce to their childhoods, feel awash in a culture of radical individualism and global capitalism. Having grown tired of megachurch innovations, they seek certainty and authority in a world of competing truth claims and long to be connected to the grand narrative of Western civilization. All of this, the Catholic Church seems to provide in abundance, especially in those parishes where these emphases set the tone, however rare parishes must be. Uh, and then he goes on and, and, and he just says this. He poses this question. Are Protestants just being cranky and obscurantist, obscurant, whatever that is, if they resist these conversions? Is the Reformers' descent from Rome 500 years ago still relevant? Is the Catholic Church the same institution that Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli denounced and from which they were severed in the 16th century? If so, then the old Protestant cause is one still worth fighting for. Here we stand. We can do no other. So that's a lengthy little blur, but I think it's written very well. And I think it touches. It's, I think it's very, uh, it's a very um, astute analysis of where we find ourselves as Christians. And I certainly feel like I am very sympathetic to the draw that Roman Catholicism, and the key word is seems to offer to people awash and all this stuff, you know, where, 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 you know, people are, you know, filled, filled with all kinds of weird thoughts about morality and, and all these types of things. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's credit where credit's due. There are strengths with Roman Catholics on this issue. I think in terms of social teaching, they're much more advanced than Protestants. I don't think that it's true that Protestants have no social teaching or they don't have a strong tradition of that, but I think it's largely in the public sphere been mm -hmm. lost. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm reading this and like, Hey, brings up some good points about our modern age. And, and probably there is a lot of blame on, I don't think Protestantism in itself as though these things naturally flow from the principles of Protestantism, but the way that Protestantism has often acted, you know, it's like, yeah, these are some good points. Yeah. It's interesting the the recipe or the the roadmap that he gives there, and it's one that I it's one that I have personally sympathized with, and I've seen other Protestants uh, move along a similar trajectory. It starts off with a a misunderstanding of what Catholicism would look like, and then when you encounter what it really looks like, that dissonance is very jarring. So you think that okay, all Catholics, it's all it's all rote. No one actually believes anything. Um, they're just like worshiping a bunch of idols in like a weird cultish like. And then you go and you visit a Catholic church and you see you see people who love Jesus. You see a really active community. You see families. You see people who they seem like the real deal. And so that I think is jarring for a lot of people um, because they've inherited a misconception of what Catholicism is and should look like. So that when they encounter the real thing, they go, hang on. 
well, this is not, this isn't like the idolatrous, crazy cult that I thought it would be. These people look like real Christians. Um, and so that I think is the first step in the appeal. And then you look at all the other things and maybe there's the modernity stuff, the lack of mooring, the lack of authority issues that you as a Protestant may be wrestling with. You're not exactly unsure, not exactly sure to understand justification. So all that comes together in this weird soup that leads to a kind of not skepticism about Protestantism, but just a, a, a appeal to what's on the other side of the fence. Um, and sometimes it ends up being a case of just the grass is greener. And sometimes it's a case where, okay, well, there, there's genuinely good things on that side. How do we incorporate that? Um, and maybe right. also how do we see through some of the, the shallow conformity and the shallow consistency that isn't really there, but, but there definitely is an appeal, right? It's an appeal on the surface. The question is how deep is it? There is a sense in which I think a lot of it is people don't know why they're Protestant. Um, and I think you're right. There's a lot of misconceptions about Catholicism, a lot of straw men. And so it can be shocking when you're like, I think what happens is if you grow up and people are making these straw men of Catholicism, you're like, oh, how could anyone believe that? And then you meet real Catholics who are thoughtful. You go see their communities. You see some piety in them. And you're like, wait a minute. And then you go, should I even trust the people who told me this stuff mm -hmm. about the Catholics? And so it's not just that Catholicism becomes more appealing, but now Protestantism looks very juvenile and unsophisticated and maybe even to some extent, you know, uninformed or deceptive at worst. Mm -hmm. And so I think, it, and I see this a lot, you know, where you kind of come up with a caricature, you meet the real thing. But I also think the flip is true as well. I think a lot of Catholics have caricatures of Protestants. Now, unfortunately, we provide them with a lot of great examples of why we're not great. <laughs> So, so, but they've got like examples Brian too, saying. like me, right, right. Um, but I think what's fascinating about the reformers—you read the magisterial reformers—they um, knew what they were talking about. They, they they knew who the church fathers were. I mean, Calvin argues, he quotes Augustine, he quotes the church fathers, um, and a lot of even systematic theologians throughout the ages—they're very accustomed. They know who Aquinas is. They appreciate Aquinas. I think for me, what was interesting is I became a Christian in Protestant circles. Then in seminary, our seminary really emphasized retrieving um, the doctrines that the reformers assumed, classical theism, a doctrine of the mm -hmm. Trinity, the incarnation. So now we're reading Athanasius, we're reading the Cappadocian Fathers, we're reading Augustine, we're reading Aquinas, shudder, right? We're reading Aquinas and saying, these guys were really right about these things. And we're also saying, we can claim them as part mm -hmm. of our tradition, right? Yeah. And I think that's the, the issue with the Reformation is it wasn't uh, scripture versus tradition. It was scripture and whose tradition, right. or who are the heirs of the tradition of the early church. And so I think that's got to be a clarifying issue. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of Catholics don't understand that Protestants actually have become very sophisticated in their critiques. Um, that that they're not sort of just throwing straw men, you know, or, or throwing at straw men or something like that. But I think they've been very thoughtful. And I don't know how many Catholics have read those critiques or even read the reformers. You know, now, to be fair, I don't mean I think Protestants should read more Catholics and, and understand where they're coming from on their own right. Yeah. But I do think that there's a sense in which if the error is un, unfairly casting Catholics in the light of being they're just rote. Uh, it's just pure traditionalism. It's dead. Mm -hmm. It's dead orthodoxy. It's all this stuff. Well, then I think you want to be charitable to the other side and go, there are thoughtful Protestants who know 
church history. Uh, there are thoughtful Protestants who go, I agree with the ills of modernity. I agree with some of the critiques that you have. And I also think, too, Protestants recapturing their own tradition. That it's right. not just going, did a Catholic do it? Let's do the opposite. Yeah. But liturgical tradition, confessional tradition, practice, all these types of things. Uh, you know, now that that's not an argument saying that Protestantism is, Protestantism is right. I'm just trying to to give a more holistic view of things that I, I sometimes I don't always, at least maybe on popular apologetics with Catholics and Protestants. I don't feel like Protestants are always given their due, you know, yeah. given given the credit they deserve for actually having good reasons for why they think certain things. And also, I think Catholics also have good reasons for why I think there's to think what what they think, and I think we got to extend that charity to one another if we want to want to talk through these things. Yeah, I, li I like that point you said about retrieving the tradition. And sometimes Catholics accuse Protestants of this. Sometimes Protestants think like this of themselves, and so it lends to the stereotype that the the Protestant movement or what we are as Protestants is something that begins in the 16th century. Like we're starting a new church in the 16th century right. and we're only 400 years old. But that's not what Luther and Calvin and the reformers thought they were doing. They they saw themselves as heirs of a 1,500-year-old Christian tradition right. from the apostles to the early church fathers to the councils and the creeds through the medieval period, through Aquinas. And they're, they're engaging with these thinkers, right? They're not just starting a new church. I think that that's really important. They're not trying to start a new church. They're trying to reform, right? They see right. themselves as at the tail end of a long tradition before them that has gone astray and they're trying to correct. And so um, Protestantism, e even labeling Protestantism as Protestantism, I, I bristle at that term because it makes it sound like as Protestants, we exist as reactionaries to this other thing like we can only exist parasitically like here's the catholic church it's this organism and we're like some kind of tick or something and so we're we're a parasite and we define ourselves that we're not this thing right we're like and th that's just the wrong way to think about it mm -hmm. protestants were trying to push against the ways that the roman catholic interpretations of christian doctrine had gone astray and bring us back into the larger tradition that is shared by the Eastern Orthodox and the Latin church that goes back all the way to the fathers um, without going, without the papacy, without some of these distinctive Roman Catholic developments. I think so that, that is how I try to think about it. And I think that may, that might be a little bit of a healthier way to frame what even it is. And maybe we should get rid of the term Protestant altogether. I don't know. That's a little bit controversial, but we're, we're, we're Christians in the Western tradition but we just disagree with the way that Roman Catholicism has taken on board some of these distinctives, like the papacy, how they understand justification, indulgences, the Marian dogmas. And the Protestants are just saying, well, these aren't uniformly um, believed by the entire church, both globally and up to the first few centuries, right? And so that's why we think we have a good case to stand on. This stuff isn't scripturally founded in the ways that Roman Catholics think it is. So it's trying to get back to the origins and the beginnings and the globalness and historical richness of Christianity, not this is a new movement from starting in the 16th century. So we've only got 400 years of theology to, to work with. I joke about this. This is a joke. But uh, sometimes I'm like, if you want to use the tradition argument, 
I think I'd become Eastern Orthodox before Catholic <laughs> because the Eastern Orthodox have an unchanged liturgy, probably the oldest liturgy that exists. They speak Greek. I mean, this is their native tongue. I know it's changed over the years, but they have, they don't have to translate to Latin and then all that stuff. I mean, this is, this is their world. And, uh, you know, if, and, and so that, that's the interesting too. We're not the first Protestants, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if you want to put it that way. I mean, that the Eastern Orthodox also would have words, you know, I mean, we, we've joked before. It's like the Presbyterians look down at the Baptists and be like, you guys don't care about tradition. And the Anglicans look at the Presbyterians and be like, you guys don't care about tradition. And the Catholics look at the Anglicans and go, you don't care about tradition. And the Eastern Orthodox are like, uh, excuse me. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> we have the, we have the deepest roots. And so this isn't even a Protestant versus Catholic thing. This is, there are three major streams. And, and this is why I think my thesis would be, that the, the the most divisive doctrine in Christianity is the papacy. I think justification by faith, that's an important conversation that needs to be had. The Marian doctrines, important conversation needs to be had. Even scripture tradition, important conversation needs to be had. But when it comes to the actual thing that divides not just Protestants from Catholics, but Catholics from everybody else mm-hmm. is the papacy. I would even argue that the papacy is, is what characterizes Roman Catholicism. I mean, Roman Catholicism. Right, the, the, mm-hmm. the seat of Rome, the the, the primacy—not even just the primacy, but but he's he's not just first among equals. I mean, he is this kind of universal authority that is binding. And you know, if you don't want to listen to us Protestants, well, then listen to these Eastern Orthodox guys. You yeah. know, and I think that there's a powerful argument there. And so, a lot of times with these debates, and I I I love talking with you know good-natured Roman Catholics. People who are thinking about Roman Catholicism, I think these, that's important. We should ha- be able to have these dialogues in friendly ways that respect each other, that care about each other. I think that's good. I think that's something that's positive that's happening today. There's more uh, dialogue about this. Um, and so I think there should definitely be – I'm glad we're not trying to kill each other or excommunicate each other or slander each other anymore, hopefully. That being said, I think that's an opportunity to actually talk more seriously about the differences. And I think – there's a lot of red herrings. Again, not, not that they're not important, but if you want to get to the heart, if the papacy is shown to be false, if there's not a good reason to believe the papacy, then I think everything kind of follows from that. Conversely, if there's a good reason to believe in the papacy and, and the claims about it, then everything follows from that. Mm-hmm. So I think that if, if, if in, maybe in the, in the future of Protestant Catholic debates, I think that's that seems to be, correct me if I'm wrong, the heart of the issue, at least among Christians in general. Um, and so I think that's one of those things, man, you love their family teaching, you love their liturgy, you love the sense of cohesion in a doctrine, uh, you love the, the aesthetic beauty, uh, you love the social teaching, all these things, but can you swallow the pill of affirming the papacy? Mm-hmm. Um, because you can't get all that, like all that other stuff. Yes. But there's this one big roadblock that you have to get through. Yeah. I, I do think it is the distinctive doctrine and the evidence for that is just, we'll look at Protestantism, Eastern Orthodoxy and Catholicism and see what's not shared among all three. And so right. th- there's a lot of shared stuff. There's a lot that the Protestants and the Eastern Orthodox have in common that the Catholics don't. There's a lot that the Latin church, the Protestant Catholics have in common that the Eastern Orthodox don't. But what has what has actually divided the church 
is this idea that the Bishop of Rome has a primacy, that he is the vicar of Christ, the actual physical, tangible representation of the incarnate word here on the globe. And it was it was a doctrine that was divisive from the 6th century to the 11th century. It's even more divisive now after the Eastern Orthodox Church split, after the Protestant Reformation. It, it really is the most distinctive um, Catholic doctrine and one that if you took out the papacy from Catholicism, it would be difficult to distinguish Eastern Orthodoxy from Catholicism. You might have different cultures, right? You'd have a different language in the mass. You'd have a different length of the mass. <laughs> Catholic mass is an hour. Eastern Orthodox do three hours. But theologically, there's a lot of similar stuff. I mean, you could say that the Eastern Orthodox have a lower Marian Mariology in, in some mm -hmm. ways. But really, it is it is the, the Roman Catholic um, like papacy. And that fits with the Roman Catholic methodology because they think that the true church is one that will develop its doctrine. This is what Newman, Newman's insight that he thinks Roman Catholicism develops doctrine. And to a Protestant and to an Eastern Orthodox, that is very grating to hear. You don't want to hear about doctrine developing. You want to think about doctrine as we get the doctrine in scripture, we have the incarnate word, and the apostles are just transferring that to the first generation of fathers, second generation. <clears throat> and so what preserves reliability is that we have this unbroken chain of transmission going all the way back to the writers of the New Testament. For Catholics, that's not they're not trying to get back to the sources. And so this is where part of the disagreement comes about. They think that part of what God did in establishing the church is giving them a papal office that can help unfurl the seed of faith. And so you get genuinely new developments of doctrine. You get the Assumption of Mary, you get the um, the ex-cathedra ex infallibility of the Pope, you get all this sort of stuff that when Protestants look at Catholics and say, that's not in the New Testament, they'll be like, we know, we fully grant that. But God gave us a body of developing doctrine guarded and incentivized by the papal office. So that's why the Pope is that distinctive for them. It's the inverse methodology of the Protestants in the Eastern Orthodox. It's not trying to, about to get back to the fathers in the first centuries in scripture. It's using that raw material. The How seed. can we unfurl that, the seed, right? right? There's They will grant that there's such a thing as corrupting the seed, right? They want right. to say there's heresies, but there is genuine room for development of doctrine. And so for a, a Roman Catholic, it's not a problem that uh, something that they believe is not directly found in scripture and that's why, like you said, the Pope is doing a lot of work in that system. How else can you get development without a, a seat of Christ to speak authoritatively outside Scripture, outside the Church Fathers? And there is a sense, and I would say this too, perpetual virginity, um, assumption of Mary, you know, the issue isn't those doctrines. I mean, Luther believed both of them. You know, right. some people think Calvin believed perpetual virginity. I mean, I think that's debatable. That's a whole other thing. But even if they did, um, I, I, the issue is not the doctrine themselves, but the status of dogma that right. they are placed, which binds the consciences of all Christians everywhere. So I think that's the nuance to where, I mean, if you could prove from Scripture the perpetual virginity. Actually, I, this is interesting. I, I was um, I asked a Greek scholar this because uh, one of the debates is when it talks about in the gospels jesus brothers and sisters you know um they will say the catholics will say that the the, the phrase uh, adelphoi 
masculine plural can mean cousins as well. That's mm. true. That's true. But this Greek scholar, he was talking about how Adelphi, which is feminine uh, plural, only refers to sisters. Mm. It can all it can sometimes refer to sisters in Christ, but in the context, if you read it, it doesn't make any sense. You know, Jesus talking about his sisters in Christ. I mean, it it in yeah. So, but it doesn't refer to cousins or distant relatives. That's an interesting wrinkle uh, yeah. that seems to be a, a decent argument against perpetual virginity. But regardless, even if those were true, um, it's the dogmatic status of it. Mm-hmm. And who has the right to to put that down? Um, the development of doctrine, I think to some, in a qualified sense, I think Protestants would affirm there's a development of doctrine in the sense that as new issues arise, uh, the church has to wrestle through and and hash it out. But I think the, the principle, the grounds by which they wrestle it is through through scripture. And I think sometimes it's like, well, whose interpretation? But I'm like, I wonder, are, are we saying by whose interpretation is right that, that you actually can't come to a reasonable confidence in an interpretation? It almost makes the text feel like hieroglyphics and only one group has the decoder ring or something like that. I know I, that's I a little bit- I resent that thing. comment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> you are of the people of the hieroglyphics. I speak hieroglyphics. Right, right. One of the things I think that's appealing about Catholicism is the stability and the structure and the authority. But is that actually the case? Is there this stability and, and authority and, and uniformity in Catholicism, in your opinion? Yeah. I mean, it is, it's the one thing that I personally like have found most attractive. And when, in my moments of weakness, let's call them that, when I look around at the world and I'm like, I need something that's stable. I feel it. it it's existential. It's not, and we were talking about this before, I think it's not for Protestants. It's not specifically doctrinal disputes and it's not aesthetic concerns. Because doctrinally, I think a lot of Protestants, the debates are so nuanced that you could find yourself going either way. And you're just like, I'm going to table that. And aesthetically, if you were really pursuing the aesthetics, you could just become an Anglican and you know get all the same, right? right. right the stained glass and the, the bells yeah. and smells and the liturgy and all that. But I think what's appealing to Protestants is the structure and the stability. And I don't have to think through everything on my own because here's this body that is 2,000 years old that's got this really robust tradition, this really robust intellectual tradition, philosophical tradition, where they've got offices that, you know, go and study the topic of evolution, go and study the topic of brain death, go and study. And they've got experts who are supposed to be faithful and trying to apply principles of scripture and Christianity to particular issues. That looks really attractive. And when you look at the consistency or the alleged consistency in how the church has been teaching on marriage and family and things like that, in an age where it doesn't seem like we have that sort of um, positive vision given anywhere else, you look at that and you go, that's really attractive. So there's there's a superficial consistency and uniformity and authority and mooring that is very attractive. That's the structural attraction of Catholicism to Protestants. So I want to grant that there's something there. But also, I think a lot of Protestants don't like interrogate that as much as they should, because there is a lot of infighting among Roman Catholics. And one example is just, how do you understand what a mortal sin is? Like, this is really important for the Catholic sacramental system. The list of mortal sins and venial sins, people disagree. There's no official pronouncement of what is a mortal sin. And a mortal sin is you're supposed to go and there's a whole process of getting back into a state of grace after you've committed a mortal sin. But Catholics disagree on what counts as a mortal sin. 
that's a huge that's a huge thing because your soul is at stake. If one priest tells you you didn't commit a mortal sin by doing this thing, and another says you did, which one of those is correct? Are you in a state of grace? Or are you outside a state of grace? Even church teaching on contraception, like you have this blanket statement on it's bad, but what counts as contraception? What kind of mindset does an individual have? Does natural family planning count as it? Like you get all these like nuanced debates within that. So I'm not saying that there is no genuine legitimacy to the appeal of the consistency, but that it, once you like actually the rubber meets the road, there's a lot more um, ambiguity. There's a lot more uh, infighting. There's a lot more Catholics themselves are trying to sort through these issues. So to the Protestants who are thinking about becoming Roman Catholic because of this appeal of consistency, I'll say yes, like there is some appeal. I genuinely count that. But also the appeal only gets you so far, right? That sort of consistency is only skin deep. Actually, there's a lot of there's a lot of different orders, there's a lot of different traditions, there's a lot of different ways. You've got rad treads, you've got Latin mass folks, you've got lots of different rad and historically treads. that's been the case. The yeah. rad treads, right? Like how do we how do we adjudicate these debates? Is, is Vatican II legit? Is it not legit? Is it what sorts of pronouncements in Vatican II are authoritative versus merely recommended versus so it gets it gets very in the weeds. And Catholics write about this. So they're aware of these problems. I just want to raise these because Protestants aren't aware of those problems that Catholics on the inside are aware of. And so the neat and tidy uniformity is there, but it's kind of ephemeral and it's it's a facade. Well, I think that this leads to another misconception, I think, about the Reformation, in which it was merely Luther having a problem with practices or or, or you know symptoms of you know, of bad fruit in the in the Catholic Church, something like that. But it was very theological for Luther, and we'll talk about that in future episodes um, about justification by faith. In fact, if, for our listeners, I mean, we did, and I'll probably try to repost these. Um, we did a great interview with Guillaume uh, Bignon, <laughs> if I'm saying it right, about the about what the actual debate about justification by faith alone is about, and it's a really, really, and he does a great job. Mm -hmm. He defines the terms well, and he gets right to the heart of, at the end of the day, there are two different gospel messages being presented between a Catholic and a Protestant, right? Um, and then I just did another one with Dr. Greg Allison of Southern Baptist Seminary, talking about tradition and scripture and the debates about that and, and whether Rome is truly as, as uniform as it claims. And I'm going to be releasing another one about church history, Michael Haken. So you guys want to want to check that out. But those are some resources. Also, if you were interested in things like apostolic succession, that's a huge one. That's directly tied into the papacy. Did an interview with Matt Colvin about early church polity. That's a good one. He, I think, gives, gives a pretty convincing argument against the doctrine of apostolic succession, at least the way that it's been articulated in church history. So that's a little teaser there for you. But all that to say, I think if people are thinking about Rome, um, I don't think people should freak out and be like, oh, you know, but I do think that the decision to become Roman Catholic must be centered on theology. It, it has to be on theological convictions. It can't be about aesthetics. You've got to get in the weeds about the papacy. You've got to actually weigh these things. And I think, you know, the the honest Roman Catholics who, you know, want to have these talks, I think they recognize that too. They They wouldn't want people to just convert for the aesthetics. They would want to understand the theological claim that is being made by Roman Catholics. Um, so if anything, that's what we want to focus these ep this little series on in, in the future episodes is talking about the theology of it. But I think it's, 
that being said, it's still important to recognize the social realities. I mean, we're not just persuaded by arguments. We're persuaded by aesthetics. We're persuaded by community, all these types of things. But I think at the end of the day, it has to be about what is true. I think it's helpful talking to and, and engaging with Catholic authors and Catholic apologists to recognize I think it's helped strengthen positions about what it means to be Protestant and appreciate that. I think one thing that's great is um, I really do think there is a primacy of the Word of God. Uh, not even making arguments about sola scriptura, but a genuine saturation of the Bible. And and I think the common trope is that you know uh, Protestants, everyone's their own pope, and certainly some people do that. But I just think that betrays an ignorance of like how a lot of Protestants, you know, who are faithfully studying the Bible, they are going, okay, look, I want to submit this to, is this, you know, it's it's on the novel idea to make a case against what the church has, has taught on, on, on these things. Um, and I think there are methods of study. I think that you can interpret the text. Like I, I understand the fear about everyone being their Pope. And I've seen its abuse. And Protestants, we have to be good about teaching people how to read the Bible well, how to read it within the church, how to read it within tradition. But sometimes the polemics, sometimes act as though the Bible is just inscrutable. Like you just, everyone has 9,000 different opinions. And that's just not true on the ground level. And I think there's a lot of unity among Protestants that people don't recognize. I mean, yes, there's Calvinists, there's Arminians, but they both agree, at least in principle, on sola scriptura. And there's Calvinists and Arminians in the Roman Catholic tradition. Not everyone is a determinist about salvation. Oh, well, there, there you go. But but I think among Protestants, there's there's still a unity on the authority of Scripture and all these types of things. Now, there are people who've gone liberal. There are liberal Catholics as well. But I, I just don't know that people, I think that's a thing that people say, you know, because they watch YouTube clips of the worst examples, when in fact, I think there is a remarkable unity in doctrine, I think there's a remarkable unity in doctrine among the three great traditions about the incarnation, the Trinity, um, you know, the 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 the, uh, the, uh, the nature of Scripture, all the all these types of things. So, I don't know. I just don't personally. I just don't buy that argument. And um, yeah, I don't. I don't think there's you know every, every single person is their own pope because Protestants appreciate and view tradition as an authority, just not the highest authority. You know. And I think we, we'll get into that mm -hmm. when we talk more about Sola Scriptura later on. But yeah, that, that, that's that's my uh, that's my little rant. Um, again, the, the, the reformers, it wasn't a matter of scripture or tradition, but scripture and who is the proper heir of the tradition. You know, one of the things I asked Dr. Haken was I, I mentioned the, the Newman quote about uh, to read history is to cease to be Protestant. And he um, had definite disagreements with that. And you'll have to listen to the episode to find out what he says. But um, I don't think that church history is is just is the mere possession of Roman Catholics. I don't think the Eastern Orthodox think that as well. Um, and I think it is good if this if this uh, you know discussion helps Protestants de delve into the riches of their own tradition and claiming the early church as their tradition, which is what the reformers did. I think it'd be very very fruitful. This is why one of my pet peeves is when we call. Roman Catholics, Catholics, and we're all Catholics because Catholic just means the universal church. And when you say the creed, you say, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Yeah. So as, as a Protestant, you're Catholic, as Eastern Orthodox, you're Catholic. We're all Catholics. And I think 
giving Roman Catholics that term, Catholicism, I think it, it does something to frame how we think about our own movement. And so I like to call myself Catholic, but not Roman. And I think it's also <laughs> when someone swims the Tiber and becomes Roman Catholic, we call it a conversion. I think that's incorrect too. I mean, you're you're switching. It, it, it's a greater leap than just switching from Presbyterian to Baptist, but it's not, you're not being converted, right? And so I think sometimes this is Roman Catholic language to describe what happens to a Protestant when they become Roman Catholic. They call it a conversion. I just think that's that's too much. It, it, it sees Roman Catholicism and Protestantism as two separate religions, and it gives the upper hand to the Roman Catholic, like almost like you weren't the real thing, and now you've been converted. Now you're really a Christian because you're Roman Catholic. So yeah, those are my two pet peeves. I don't call Roman Catholics Catholics, and I don't call it conversions when a Protestant becomes Roman Catholic. <laughs> I don't know. The Roman Catholic Church had the two largest splits in the history of the entire church uh, church age. I mean, you know, the Eastern Orthodox and the Protestants, you know, and, and so I think, I mean, they're doing the same thing. They're just excommunicating people who don't affirm what they say, which I, I think that's internally consistent with their system. But I mean, it didn't preserve the unity. You know, what is it? You, you said something before about if you keep kicking out members of your family, you can't say that we preserve our family. Like we've, we've yeah, got a well preserved exactly. family because we keep kicking out people that we don't like. Right, right. Yeah. You're just like, we've, we've, <laughs> we've preserved our family. What about Uncle Joe? He's not our uncle anymore. It's like, well, <laughs> that's interesting. I don't think that every Catholic isn't saved because they're Catholic, or, you know, or, and, and most Catholics, I don't think would say that Protestants aren't saved. And I think today there's been a lot of progress. Um, Catholics saying that, you know, you're separated brethren you know, and, and great appreciation for Protestants, even saying Luther was right about a few things. And yeah, I mean, I, I grant all that. That being said, um, the communion table is closed and there's a reason for that. And I don't fault them for it. I think it's internally consistent with, with their system. But um, to me, you know, it feels like we're more than just separated brethren. Uh, there are times when I wonder if, if the true if the, if, the, if the Roman Catholic Church is the metaphysical extension of the incarnation of Christ, and if union with Christ is tied to union with the Holy Apostolic Church, and that is defined by the papacy and, and the ordination and, and, and the bishops and the magisterium and all that stuff, then I, I don't know what our communion with Christ actually is outside of the Roman Catholic Church. I can grant that the Spirit can work outside the doors of the Church. I, I'm sure a lot of Catholics grant that. It just feels very tenuous. Like, mm -hmm. like it almost seems like a, a Protestant being saved is the exception rather than the rule. And uh, I, I, I'm I'm genuinely curious whether that's an internally consistent position. So all that to say, the more I've learned about Catholicism, the more I'm like, wow, there are huge differences. I mean, like huge differences. And it's not a matter of just, you know, you're a Calvinist, I'm an Arminian. It's, it's again, I think it centers on the papacy, but there are some major claims that are being made. And I hope that people who are considering Roman Catholicism consider that. It's not a denominational switch. It is an all-encompassing claim. But who the body of Christ is, who the actual church is, what authority is, it's a big deal. And the Tiber is cold this time of year. <laughs> that, was, that was ominous. <laughs> um, I appreciate a lot about Roman Catholicism. 
I don't think it's the Antichrist or any of those types of things. I think that they bring up good points that Protestants have to contend with, you know, and uh, and I don't I just think the solution isn't to become Catholic. I think it's to become a better Protestant, you know, but all that to say, yeah, no, I, I think in these debates, there have been many times where I'm like, hmm, that's a really good point. And it forces me back to really understand what does my own tradition believe? And I think that's that's going to be fruitful you know, for anyone. That last thing you said, just encouragement to be able to learn from each other. And yeah. I think, like you pointed out, Roman Catholics have have acknowledged that Luther had some good points. And I think they, I once, I was talking to a Catholic priest in Oxford and he said, the one thing that I bemoan about our Catholic seminaries is they don't teach our priests to preach like you guys do. And so <laughs> he, he could identify that was a weak spot. Like, you know, Roman Catholic homilies are not traditionally... Uh, loved for their rigor and inspiration and conviction, um, because it's not the high point of the service. It's the Eucharist, right? And so you get um, a deteriorated quality, typically, of homilies. But also, I think Protestants can look to Roman Catholics and think about their rich philosophical tradition, that they're they're really delving and mining the tradition and patristics for how should we think about life and marriage and the Trinity and their they're historically connected in a way that Protestants aren't consistently doing. And so just being able to look across the Tiber and learn from each other, I think is a really healthy instinct and we're not killing each other anymore. It's not the 16th, 17th century. So that's, there's that's progress. progress. Yeah. There's progress. And I, yeah. I think there's a lot to learn from one another. Uh, do you think Aquinas was a Calvinist? I think he was before, a determinist. Before Calvin, you think he was a yeah. determinist? I mean, I think, yeah, he had a very strong view of predestination. Yeah. Huh. He was not a libertarian about free will. Now you mentioned off camera <laughs> oh, uh, <no. laughs> that uh, that Aquinas denied the Immaculate Conception. Yeah, he did. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah, he didn't believe that God um, claimed Mary and protected her from original sin. He did think that God's grace prevented her from sinning, but it's not through the mechanism of the Immaculate Conception. So it wasn't because she was guarded and saved from original sin. Um, he had some other weird theory about it. So. Yeah, it's oh. a little bit complicated, but he he explicitly denied the adoption of the Immaculate Conception. Um, I don't know what that means for, I don't know if it was magisterial teaching at that time or if it was mm -hmm. only later. Maybe but it was clarified yeah, later, yeah. Could be, yeah. But he, another example of someone who is a doctor of the church, but um, had interesting takes on traditionally Roman Catholic positions. Hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, this has been a great discussion. Uh, again, we're going to be releasing episodes. Uh, the I'm going to be releasing soon the Michael Haken episode where we talk about church history, but we're going to continue on talking about this. And we'd love to hear from you. If you're like, you guys have totally misrepresented Catholicism, hey, message us on Instagram. Uh, you can uh, visit our website, That'll Preach. You can contact us there. Let us know. And we'd love to hear from you. And, and uh, we'd love to be sharp in our own thinking about this. But thank you guys for listening. Make sure you check us out. And we'll be back here next week. Subscribe, like, all that stuff. See you guys.